Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You may turn to Ezekiel 33. Now here's my disclaimer for the evening. It's not going to be short. <laughs> well, that's kind of a given. <laughs> that's, that's not a disclaimer. <laughs> I'm operating under some duress tonight. I did go to the orthopedist today and I did get a shot in my shoulder. And the shoulder shot has really stimulated the problem. And so I've got bursitis in my shoulder, and so they put the shot right into the bursa sac, and it has really made the inflamed bursa sac even more angry. But the upside of it is the shot was steroids, and so this is preaching on steroids tonight. The beginning of Ezekiel chapter 33 is one of the more well-known Bits of phraseology in the Old Testament, the concept of the watchman on the wall, an idea that gets bandied about quite a bit in Christianity. We will look at it tonight and see whether it actually does apply to the Christian ministry or not. And then the second part of this portion is going to get into God saying that a righteous man, if he turns from his righteousness into his wickedness, that wickedness wipes out all the righteousness. He will die in his wickedness and be judged accordingly. But a wicked man who's been wicked his whole life, if he turns from his wickedness to his righteousness, he'll save his own life. God will forgive him and forget about all that wickedness in favor of the goodness. And then even God knows that people are going to say, well, that's not right. That's not fair. How can... Somebody be good their whole life. Good, I'm doing good, I'm doing fine my whole life, and then I I mess up, and I die in my wickedness. And so God even is going to argue, you're the one who's not right. (laughs) I'm God. I'm right. And so it's important that we recognize that that's the kind of God that we're dealing with. Even though it sounds like God is being unfair to our human standards or that you should be able to live a life of righteousness and then have that count for something and it would be terrible for all your righteousness to be wiped out just by that one wickedness it demonstrates two things it demonstrates how much God hates sin and wickedness because he's merciful if you turn from your wickedness to righteousness then he's going to forgive you for your wickedness but even in all your righteousness if you turn to wickedness God's going to hold you guilty for that wickedness and that is the God you're dealing with that is the standard you're dealing with that wickedness all the time in every demonstration of wickedness has to be punished has to be responded to God is always against sinners and wickedness So then how valuable does that make Christ? How valuable does that make the fact that we do have an intercessor who knowing that God is like this, knowing that God would hold our wickedness in judgment, that he would have to judge our wickedness, knowing that it's just great that we have an intercessor who was willing to submit himself to the wrath of God in our place, and as our substitute, his perfect righteousness would be imputed to our account so that we end in righteousness and all our wickedness gets wiped out, just like what God's about to say. So it's funny when you read through this, there is that human element where you think, well, that can't be right. That doesn't sound right. How does all my righteousness get wiped out by my wickedness? One wicked act, a little bit of wickedness toward the end. I've been righteous my whole life. Doesn't that count for anything? Put it on the scale. Come on, my righteousness outweighs my wickedness. And God says, no, the wickedness wipes out the righteousness. And that would be the case for every one of us if we didn't have an imputed righteousness that was a perfect righteousness that wipes out all our wickedness. So even as God is saying, it's not me that's unfair, it's you that don't understand, because God had a plan for how he was going to achieve perfect righteousness. 
So that's the beginning of chapter 33. And then the end of chapter 33 is going to be that finally messengers come to Ezekiel to let him know that Jerusalem has actually fallen. Because up until now, all the way through the book, we've been looking at all these predictions that Jerusalem was going to fall. The people who were behind the walls of Jerusalem felt that they were safe. They felt that God was punishing the people who had been transported into Babylon, but they felt that they were still going to be okay. They were still safe, and God has been continually telling them, no, you're also going to be wiped out. In fact, I'm going to wipe you out by the plague and by the sword and by the fire. And, and so finally a, a fellow is going to come to Ezekiel and say, that's it, Jerusalem has fallen. And that's the end of chapter 33, which would be a really sad place to stop, except that Ezekiel keeps talking. And in chapter 34, there's all these prophecies of the restoration of Israel. There's all this good news about how God is going to be faithful to Israel. So even in the midst of Jerusalem falling, once again we see God's promises that he made to himself and that he made to Abraham that Israel is going to be once again brought into their own land. They're going to be restored. So that's the big overview of what I hope to hit tonight. But I was thinking all day about whether I was going to try to draw this connection or not, but I will, and then you can tell me whether it was worth it or not. What we have seen through Ezekiel so far, and especially now that Jerusalem is falling, God has said that even those who have survived are going to fall by the sword, by the pestilence, by the wild animals, by the fire. He's going to get pretty much everybody. So, a God like that, who is so full of justice that he could choose a people and he could call them my people, he could call them my elect, he could choose those people as a people group, but then because of their rebellion, because they turned away from him, because they turned to idols, because they didn't keep his day holy, because they didn't do the things that he said to do, he's willing to put them through this punishment that includes physical death and awful physical death, being invaded by their enemies. And it's a great confusion to Israel, as Ezekiel's continued to say. It's, it's a great confusion to Israel. Where is God in the midst of this? How can this be happening to us? We, after all, are the, the chosen people of God. I've been seeing a lot, obviously, this week about the recent uptick in gun violence in schools, and everybody has an opinion. Everybody's got an idea, well, it's, it's because of guns, we need to restrict the guns, or it's because of the kind of guns, or, or it could be a mental health issue, or it could be a matter of just uh, violence in video games, pouring out into the children that are watching the games too much so that they've lost the sense of reality. Or it could also be that uh, in schools they are teaching Darwinism and so everything is relative and human life really doesn't have any value beyond the value that you place on it. I've seen a wide variety of opinions. What I'm not seeing a lot, uh, okay, I'm not seeing any, is the reality that when I was in school, back before the flood. When I was in school, there were guns, just as many guns per capita as there is now, but we didn't have violent shootings in my school or in any schools that I knew of. I didn't hear about school shootings. But you know what we did have in our schools? We did have Bible as literature as one of our classes. There were people walking up and down the halls carrying the Bible. We did have the Ten Commandments including the commandment, thou shalt not kill, posted in the library at the school. We did start every single day, even up into my high school years, we started every day with the Pledge of Allegiance and a prayer. Every day, over the PA system. Everybody stood up, we said the Pledge of Allegiance, and there was the morning prayer. So there was this consciousness of God. Well, that consciousness of God has been systematically driven out of our society and out of our schools. And as a political football, there is even the idea of the separation of church and state. 
and so since the schools are state-run then you can't have prayer you can't have God you can't have the Ten Commandments you can't have any of that in your school because that is a mixing of religion or the government advancing one religion over the other religions or all of that stuff and so God is being systematically not just separated from schools but separated from our society at large yeah separated from the culture we just can't talk about it the marketplace of ideas these days doesn't include God, godliness, what morality, biblical godliness looks like. Just today, sitting in the waiting room at the orthopedist, there was an advertisement for a show called what, Living Biblically. Is that, is that it? It's a comedy that's coming out. And I said to Janine, you know what this is going to be. It's going to be them every week picking some part of the Bible that they find ridiculous, and they're going to make comedy out of it, and it's going to be, oh, Joe, you're trying to live biblically. Are you mixing fabrics? It's going to be some stupid thing like that. And then as we were leaving, there was another commercial for the Living Biblically comedy show in which, what was it they brought? Are you going, are you going to be stoning people? Okay, so there you go. Now the Bible is comedy. And the more that they can make the Bible comedy, the more you can ignore the Word of God or you can see it as a completely throwaway idea. It's optional. If you want to try to live that way, it's actually impossible because, after all, the Bible is ridiculous. The Bible has comedy. So my point is we're seeing God, godliness, and righteousness based on God and God's Word being systematically taken out of our society and out of our schools. And then the same God who says that those who are in Jerusalem, who he's called, his people, his elect, who didn't do things his way, who didn't follow after him as the only God who went and chased their idols, the ones who didn't set aside their time as recognizing his holiness or doing things his way, those very people he's not only punishing but driving out of his city and is going to give over to the sword and to the pestilence, and to the animals, and to the fire, and to the... So would that same God, could that same God to this very day say to a society, oh, you don't want me in your society? Fine, I'll turn you over to your own wildness. I'll turn you over to your own wickedness. It's not the guns. It's not a mental health issue. It's where is God in all this? Because the further people get away from God, I am convinced, the more insane they become. Because the only place you find genuine sanity is in the word of God and in the recognition that God as the sovereign is in control of life, which gives life meaning, which gives suffering meaning, and which gives you an inspiration to live a righteous, holy, godly life. And when you remove that from a society, the society can't help but get worse. And we're watching it. We're seeing it happen. Can't even be civil. You're right. And people are wringing their hands and trying to figure out what it is. And we're going to send the students to Washington. And they're, they're going to say to Trump, where were you? And they're going, to, they're going to, oh, gun control. And we need to limit the amount of inanimate objects in our society. Maybe that will make people better. It's not going to make people any better because the problem is the godlessness that is in people. And we know that people are, this is the basis of everything we believe, human beings are essentially depraved. Wholly depraved, totally depraved. We know that. So now you give totally depraved people free reign to do whatever they want. Then you're surprised that bad things happen? Does that make sense? Am I just talking crazy up here? But just walking and being in the schools when all this happened. I mean, you can just see the difference. You can. You can see the difference. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? Yeah. Chapter 33 of Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land and the people of the land Take one man from among them and make him their watchman. Okay, so notice what God has just done. What he's basically saying is, you all know enough that once you've built a wall around you, that you're going to put people on that wall in order to watch for your enemy when he's coming. Yeah. 
But God said, as the enemy's coming, that's me. I'm bringing the sword. I'm bringing the enemy. Because that's the way a sovereign would talk. So, if I bring a sword upon the land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land, and he blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take the warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. That just makes sense. If the watchman on the wall blows the trumpet, look out, here comes the enemy, they don't pay any attention, well, then they're going to get wiped out by the enemy, and the blood is on their own head. The watchman told them, but they didn't pay any attention. Verse 5 expands on that. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take the warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken the warning, he would have delivered his life. He would have prepared. He would have gotten his own sword. He would have locked himself away. He would have done whatever he had to do to protect himself if he had paid attention to the warning. But if the watchman, verse 6, sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes a person from them, He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Because the watchman knew it was coming, but didn't blow the warning. Now, the point of all this is, verse 7, Now as for you, son of man, Ezekiel, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Now, as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have spoken, saying, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? This is the first warning that God is starting to give Ezekiel and saying, now go say this to the people. They're not going to agree. They're going to argue with you. They're going to say, how is that right? And God's not fair. They're going to say that, but I've given you the warning. Now, because I've made you the watchman, you have to go and warn them, because if you don't, broadcast my warning I'm going to require it from you but if you at least go tell them then whatever happens to them you have saved your own life because you did what I told you to do now as I mentioned earlier and we don't have to go into this in any great detail but is there a way to take that direction that is given to Ezekiel and apply it to Christian ministry generally or any particular preacher, because I have had people in the past say, well, you're supposed to be a watchman on the wall, so why aren't you addressing this particular social ill, or why aren't you crying out about this particular thing that's going on, because you're a watchman on the wall. And I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where that concept, that idea of watchman on the wall, is carried over and applied in any new covenant way to any of the preachers of the gospel. Now, if you have a different opinion, please say so. But I think this is a very, very specific instruction given specifically to Ezekiel because you don't see that instruction given to any of the other prophets. You see it here given to Ezekiel because he specifically is going to go to those people and give them the warning that God's about to give them. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Am I alone up here? Mm -hmm. Okay. And by the way, on the internet, they cannot hear your head shaking. Unless you can make your head rattle in some significant way. You're not alone. So here's the warning that he is supposed to go give. Now, as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have spoken. In other words, this is what you're walking around saying. You're saying, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us. And we are rotting away in them. 
how then can we survive? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness, whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits wicked sin. So here's God saying, you can live righteously your whole life, and if you turn to wickedness, you're going to die in your wickedness. And you can live wicked your whole life, but if you turn to your righteousness, I'll forgive the wickedness. That's how much God hates wickedness under every situation. But when human beings hear that, they think, come on, how many years have I invested in my righteousness? That must be worth something. God says, no, if you turn to your wickedness, all that righteousness means nothing. I wipe it all out, and I'm going to judge you in your wickedness, and you're going to die in your wickedness. Verse 13, when I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity? Isn't that interesting? God knows the psychology of human beings who say, I'm good, I'm righteous, I've been living righteous, I'm doing fine. I can probably mess around with a little bit of sin. I can probably stick my toe in this pool right here. That's not going to hurt me at all because, after all, look at me. I'm a righteous guy. I've lived righteous my whole life. Righteousness defines me. So I can do some wickedness. God says, when I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of his, which he has committed, he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness, if a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by the statutes which ensure life without committing iniquity, he will surely live. He shall not die. And of course, people would think, well, but he's been wicked his whole life. He's been nothing but wicked. How can God turn around and say he's going to live in righteousness? Just because he did righteousness toward the end, how does that count for everything? God doesn't even remember the wickedness. God is only going to treat him according to his righteousness. Verse 16, none of his sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. He has practiced justice and righteousness, so he will surely live. Yet, here's the warning, yet your fellow citizens say, the way of the Lord is not right, when it is their own way that is not right. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, then he shall die in his iniquity. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and practices justice and righteousness, he will live by them. And yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. Now, how do we apply that? As I said earlier, if that were still the standard, how many of us could have any confidence that we're going to be okay when we stand before an absolutely righteous, holy God? Because there's not a person in this room who isn't really conscious of his own sinfulness, of his own failures. And when you size up your righteous standing and you size up your wicked standing, especially after Isaiah telling us that all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, what have you really got? When you get before God, 
you've got evil and you've got filthy rags and you've got wickedness and unrighteousness. So if God were to judge you on the basis of your own works, this is the standard. This is the standard. I'll forgive all of your wickedness if you're righteous. But then we find out that there was nobody in Israel, even though they had the law, even though they had the precepts and the standards of God, there was none of them that could actually do righteousness. There was none of them that could be righteous. And God says, in whatever righteousness you have accumulated in your wickedness, I'm not going to count that. I'm going to wipe out your righteousness. That, That pretty much puts everybody in the guilty column. And that again is why Christ is so important. That is why it is so important that we have a genuine mediator who not only pays for our wickedness and our sinfulness, but who then imputes his righteousness to us so that when God looks on us, he sees our righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, and based on what he said here, I'll forgive your wickedness. I'll forget about that. None of his sins, verse 16, None of his sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. That's a good deal. deal. That's that's good. None of my sins are going to be remembered against me if I just what? If I just be righteous. I can't be righteous in and of myself. But if I have the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to me, then all my sins aren't brought up anymore. Mm -hmm. See what God is doing? He's setting the standard on purpose. So that he can say, now there's the answer. That's my son. That's the importance of my son. That's the one who every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. That's the one who's going to have the name that is above every name. That's the one who's going to demonstrate my righteousness and my grace. That's the one who's going to be lifted up to my right hand in heaven because he's going to accomplish the standard that I hold, which you human beings say, well, that's not right. You human beings say, the way of God isn't right. How can that be the right way? Who's going to get saved that way? We're in big trouble if that's the standard. And God says, that's my standard because I'm right. I'm God. And he's created that standard so that all of us recognize our own inability and the necessity of a mediator. So then it goes on. Now it came about in the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth of the tenth month, that the refugees from Jerusalem came to me, saying, The city has been taken. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me in the evening before the refugees came, and he opened my mouth at the time that they came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened and I was no longer speechless. We looked at that passage several weeks ago when we were talking about the fact that God had made Ezekiel essentially mute, except that God was going to open his mouth to say the things that God had said. God was going to allow him to speak God's word after him, but he wasn't going to be able to speak on his own behalf so that he couldn't go and warn the Israelites. Instead, he could only say what God had said in the prophecies and judgments against them. But now, since God had said it's going to be that way till the fall of Jerusalem, now the refugees have come to him and said that Jerusalem has fallen, and so God opens his mouth and he's able to speak again. In other words, God was once again exactly faithful to exactly what he said. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 24, Son of man, They who live in these waste places, in the land of Israel, are saying, Abraham was only one, and yet he possessed the land. So to us, who are many, the land has been given as a possession. In other words, they just assumed that they were going to be safe in the land. And now Jerusalem has fallen just the way that God said was actually going to happen, but they in their own self-sufficiency believed, and notice that they did it theologically, they believed by changing the word of God, twisting it a little bit, shaping it in order that it would fit their particular situation. They said, well, Abraham was only one, and yet he possessed the land. So now, spiritualized theological application, well, we're many, so we should occupy the land. 
It's given to us as a possession. Verse 25, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat meat with blood in it. Well, that's one of the things that God said don't do in the law. You lift up your eyes to your idols as you shed blood, as you commit murder. So should you possess the land? You rely on your sword. You commit abominations. And each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? Thus you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, as I live, Surely those who are in the waste places will fall by the sword, and whoever is in the open field I will give to the wild beasts to be devoured. And those who are in the strongholds and in the caves will die of pestilence. And I shall make the land a desolation and a waste, and the pride of her power will cease, and the mountains of Israel will be desolate, so that no one will pass through. And then they will know that I am the Lord when I make the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations which they have committed. So now I kind of go back to my first point. If this is the God we're talking about and if he's willing to be like this after he has revealed himself to a people and has blessed those people so greatly and then they turn their back on him, he's willing to bring pestilence and sword and wild animals and all kinds of death and destruction and desolation on them. Is it really that surprising that it's happening around us? Mm-hmm. Verse 29. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Because he's predicted this, he's prophesied this, it's going to happen. So when it happens, they will know that it is the Lord, it's Yahweh who makes the land desolate. And a waste because of all the abominations which they committed. But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, come now and hear the message which comes forth from the Lord. In other words, Ezekiel had gained a certain amount of fame in Babylon a certain notoriety. People knew who he was and they knew that he spoke for God. And so God, knowing the intention of the hearts of these people, says to Ezekiel, sure, they want to come hear from you. Sure, they want to hear a word from the Lord. But once they hear it, they treat it like it's somebody singing a snazzy song. They don't pay attention to it. They don't take it seriously. They don't take it as what it is, the very word of God. Uh, Can we apply that? (laughs) There are plenty of people who are like, well, I think I'll go to church. I think I'll see what the Bible says today through whoever's preaching today. And as long as there's fancy music and a big show, smoke machines and puppets, as long as there's stuff for me and for my kids, then, then we'll go. But then by Sunday afternoon, they don't even remember. What did he preach? I, well, we had a good service. I know that. So here's God saying, even back then, that there were going to be people who seek you out, Ezekiel, because they want to know what you say God says. But here's the way God describes it. As for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses... Speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song. Okay, I referred to it as a snazzy song. That's the gemmerized version. But listen to how sarcastic God is being. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song, a beautiful song by one who has a beautiful voice and who plays well on an instrument. In other words, they think it's just a performance. They're impressed with your performance, but they don't do what you say. They're not paying attention to what you say. They're not taking it to heart and acting on it. For they hear your words, God says, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, 
since they're going to hear you say that I am going to make Israel desolate. They're going to hear that, but they're going to think it's just another prophetic snazzy song. They've been hearing you say this stuff for a long time. So when I do bring it to pass, as surely it will come to pass, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. That's when they're going to know, when I actually do it, when I actually take them out of their land, destroy their land, when I make Israel desolate, that's when they're suddenly going to wake up and pay attention and go, oh, all that stuff we were hearing? Turns out that was true. We just thought it was entertaining, but it turns out it's true. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Just this past Sunday, we were talking about shepherd the flock that God has given you the oversight over. Here, Ezekiel is to prophesy, to speak to, and to speak against those that are supposed to be shepherding the flock of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Oh, can we apply that today? Seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? We just talked on Sunday about the folk who are in the ministry so they can have a mansion or a jet plane or a, a university with their name on the front of it or whatever else. God right here decries that kind of behavior. Old or New Testament, that kind of behavior is strictly forbidden, and yet it runs rampant in modern Christianity. Woe to those shepherds who have been feeding themselves, and yet not the shepherds feeding the flock. You eat the fat, and you clothe yourself with the wool. Isn't that what we were just getting at? Fleecing the flock. You have fleeced the flock for what reason? So that you can eat the fat and wear the wool. As if the sheep all belong to you. And that the purpose of the sheep is to enrich you and get you more stuff. More wool for me, more fat food for me. I'm going to do fine. I'm going to feed myself, but I'm going to do it on the back of the flock that doesn't even belong to me. You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. Does that sound familiar to Peter saying, don't lord it over the flock? By the way, looking at verse 4 there, and knowing that God intends to gather his own flock to himself. And he has said the shepherds haven't done it. They haven't brought the scattered back to themselves. What did Jesus say he came here to do? He said, I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What's he referring to? He's referring to this kind of stuff. When he refers to himself as the good shepherd and says, which shepherd, if he has a hundred sheep, if one wanders off, isn't going to leave the ninety and nine and go find that one that wandered off? When he finds him, he's going to put him on his shoulder and bring him back into the fold. What's he doing? He's using shepherd language to show that he is the true shepherd, the good shepherd, and that the previous shepherds of Israel did nothing but scatter Israel. Because they taught Israel how to rebel against God. Because they taught Israel how to chase after foreign idols and how to not keep God's Sabbaths and not not follow God's law. Because that's the way that they led them and shepherded them, God said, I'm not going to have these shepherds anymore. I'm going to do away with these shepherds and I'm going to send my own shepherd in order to shepherd the flock of Israel. And Jesus walked around saying, my sheep know my voice. They do follow me. I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What's he doing? He's satisfying what God's talking about back here in Ezekiel. They were scattered, verse 5. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field. And they were scattered. My flock 
wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill, and my flock was scattered over the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, in other words, this is definitely going to happen. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I shall demand my sheep from them. Notice what God has said. And I really, really appreciate this. Notice that no condition of sheephood was changed just because of bad shepherding. Those that belonged to God belonged to God anyway. God still knew that they were his sheep, and he's still going to gather his sheep despite the bad shepherding. I'm going to demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore but I shall deliver my flock. Why? Because God is faithful. I will deliver my flock from their mouth that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God. Now it gets really, really good. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. How did he do that? He sent Jesus. That's why Jesus used all that language of being the good shepherd, of seeking out sheep, of his sheep hearing his voice. All of that language is the fulfillment of God saying, the bad shepherds don't change the fact that they're still my sheep. So because I'm faithful to my sheep, I will send my shepherd. I will seek for my sheep. I'll bring my sheep back to me. Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the high heights, the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in good grazing ground. And they will feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. The lost? I will seek the lost. The lost who? The lost of Israel. The lost sheep of Israel. I will seek the lost sheep of Israel. What did Jesus say? I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what he's doing is satisfying, fulfilling God's faithfulness to gather specifically Israel. We get the impression sometimes when we say sheep language, we get the idea that he's talking about church generally. But there is a specificity to the way Jesus referred to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, what does that also tell you eschatologically about God's faithfulness to Israel? It means that his faithfulness to Israel continues right up to and continuing through not only the continuation of the Abrahamic covenant, but the establishment of the new covenant, which he made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and that he sent Jesus to the planet not just to get you or me. He sent Jesus to the planet to get the lost sheep of the house of Israel because God is proving his own faithfulness to Israel. I will feed them in a good pasture, says verse 14. And their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in good grazing ground and they will feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken 
and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. So who's that? Those are the ones who have fattened themselves. Those are the ones who have made themselves powerful on the back of their brethren. And as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in a good pasture? That you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pastors? This is him talking again to the fat ones, to the strong ones, to the ones who are destroying the rest of the flock. He says, it's not enough that I gave you good stuff. You also had to wreck all the other good stuff so that nobody else got any. Isn't it enough that you could feed in a good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pastures? Or that you would drink from clear water? That you would follow the rest of it with your feet? And as for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet, and they must drink what you foul with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder, and you thrust at all the weak with your horns, until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Okay, so here's God in the great big panorama of history making things work out exactly the way he wanted because he's telling one story from beginning to end throughout this book, the book of the Bible, not just the book of Ezekiel. David, when he was made king, when Samuel was sent to the house of Jesse to go anoint the next king of Israel, Jesse walks in and sees these fine-looking boys, each one taller than the other, and each one that he looks at, he goes, well, surely that's got to be him. And God says, no, not him. Nope, I've rejected him. Nope, it's not him. Finally, he says to Jesse, don't you have any other sons? And he says, well, yeah, there's David, but he's out shepherding. In other words, you're, you're not interested in him. He's low. He's a shepherd. He says, I got to go see him. God tells him that's him. Samuel anoints him. You're the next king of Israel. God gives him an unconditional covenant that God is going to build him a house, a dynasty, a lineage. So how is that going to be satisfied? That David is always going to have one of his heirs sitting on the throne judging Israel? Well, here it is. God says to him, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be the prince among them. Verse 23 says, I'm going to set over them one shepherd, which is why Jesus walked around referring to himself as the good shepherd, my servant David. That's why it's so important that the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke both trace Jesus back through Jesse through David. He's the descendant of David who's going to sit on the throne over Israel, and he will feed them. And he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Jesus comes onto the planet and says, I'm the shepherd. Why is it important he said that? Because he's satisfying what God has promised Israel, specifically Israel. Can you really say, seeing this, reading this kind of passage, understanding its satisfaction and its fulfillment in Jesus, seeing the big picture reaching all the way back to David and God preparing a lineage for David that would be satisfied in Christ and God's repeated promises through all his prophets that he's going to bring Israel back and plant them in the land and he's going to give David's greater son as their king. Can you actually say, well, God's done with Israel? You just can't get to that. You can't get to that. I see it every day. I see it all the time on Facebook, people making comparisons and saying, well, the church is Israel. And Israel's the church, and God's done with national Israel. And not according to any of this. According to, what's that word? The word of God. God says of himself, I'm not done with Israel. In fact, I sent my son to Israel, to prove to Israel, I'm not done with Israel. And everything else I'm going to do for Israel, I'm going to do through him. 
which is why it says in the New Testament that all the promises of God in him are yes, in him, amen. Because in him, God is saying yes to everything God has ever prophesied. And in him, God is saying, amen, verily, verily, it shall be so in Christ. But he's going to do it. He's still going to do absolutely everything he said he's going to do, which is why the New Testament has the language, especially the Gospels, have that language of kingdom and taking the gospel of the kingdom to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And why Jesus would talk to his apostles for 40 days about the kingdom and why they would say, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Because all of that language and all those promises that the prophets have all talked, they also knew that it was going to be satisfied through the Messiah, through the Son of God. Now the Son of God, the Messiah, is on the planet. Now they're saying, okay, where's the rest of it? What are you doing? That's, what's next? Because they believed that God was faithful literally to every single thing he ever said. And so they naturally expected God to literally satisfy and fulfill everything he's ever said, including stuff like this, especially when you've got Jesus walking around using this very language. I'm going to send a shepherd. Jesus shows up and says, I'm that shepherd. But then it gets even better. I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken, and, verse 25, and I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from their land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Has that happened yet? Is there peace and security in the Middle East? Oh, dear. We were watching a video today. I walked in the room. Janine was watching it. I said, what's this about? She said, it's the five most dangerous places to visit on the planet right now. You know what they all had in common? They were all in the Middle East. Every one of them was Middle Eastern countries. Top dog, number one, Syria. Don't go to Syria. But Yemen was in there. and you know They were all five in the Middle East, the most dangerous place on earth right now. And God says, I'm going to make that the most peaceful place. But how's he going to do it? I'm going to make a covenant of peace with them. Because that covenant of law only served to condemn them. So God promises I'm going to make a covenant of peace with them. Eliminate the harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them, them specifically, and the places around my hill all those Middle Eastern areas, a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke. And have delivered them from the hand of those who have enslaved them. And they will no longer be a prey to the nations. Is that true? They're still prey to the nations. And the beasts of the earth will not devour them. But they will live securely and no one will make them afraid. And no one will make them afraid. Have you seen Israel lately? It's a pretty fearful place to be right now. And I will establish for them a renowned planting place. And they will not again be victims of famine in the land. And they will not endure the insults of nations anymore. Has that happened? Is there anybody insulting Israel out there? Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And that they, the house of Israel are my people, declares the Lord. And that they, the house of Israel, <laughs> are mine. They're my people, declares the Lord. Now let me point out one more quick thing, just on a theological basis. There are a great many folks who say that God made all these promises to Israel, and then he gave them the law, and he talked them out of Egypt, and then he brought them into the land of milk and honey 
through the leadership of Joshua, and that that was it. God satisfied everything he said he was going to do. But then they broke the law. They didn't follow after God, and so therefore God rightly has dismissed them and is done with them because after all, he did everything he said he was going to do, but having done it, they then broke the law, so God's done with them. Let me point out that everything we're reading right here is long after they went into the promised land, long after God accomplished everything he said he was going to do. All these promises happen after they've been sent out, scattered from their land, after God has punished them. God is still saying to them, even after all that, that you're going to know that Israel is my people. I'm Israel's God. Israel is my people. Even after all that, even after their depravity and their sin and their rebellion and their chasing other gods and everything else, God doesn't give up on them. Why? Because they're his people. Why doesn't God give up on Micah? I gave up on Micah. Why doesn't doesn't God give up on any of us? It's such good news. It's because we're his people. Having chosen us, that's a done deal because God doesn't make mistakes. And God, having chose us, sees that we are rebellious as Israel was. So, the same way he makes a covenant of peace with Israel for their restoration, he made a new covenant promise to us so that we could be adopted into the family. And so then he could forgive our sins because he could give us a righteousness, an imputed righteousness, Christ's perfect righteousness to our account. Then he doesn't have to remember any of the sin anymore. And then we are going to find out what he said right here. He's God. We're his people. It is God's intention to constantly display not only his sovereignty, but his faithfulness to those that belong to him. And too many Christians, I think, kind of get self-satisfied and a bit uppity in saying, well, yes, God's faithful to me, yes, but Israel, well, they've really goofed up. Israel, they didn't follow the law. Israel, they chased the foreign gods. Israel, God's done with them, except that the language is that God is not done with them, and in fact, I would continue to argue Jesus was sent as the redeemer of Israel. That's what he's called That's what he says he's doing. Don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Don't go to the way of the the Samaritans. Go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Mm -hmm. Go and preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's all New Testament gospel language. So if you're really preaching the biblical gospel, you have to include that because it is the demonstration of God's faithfulness to Israel that gives us the confidence that God's going to be faithful to us. If he can be this faithful to these people under these circumstances, well, then he's going to be faithful to us. I will establish for them a renowned planting place. In other words, God's going to give them such good land and such a place of planting that it's going to become renowned, the amount of food there is in Israel. And they will not again be victims of famine in the land, and they will not endure the insults of nations anymore, and then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pastor, you are Men, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. That's how the relationship works. God knows the difference. We don't seem to know the difference. We don't seem to understand. We keep trying to redefine God based on our limited knowledge of what God might be like or by our traditions or by what we can conceive God to be. But God makes the difference and says, as for you, you sheep, He doesn't want anybody to misunderstand the analogy he's laid out. You sheep, you're men. You're human beings. You're my sheep. I'm your God. That's good news. That's good news. news. It's good to know that the Lord God is our God. But it's good to know that our God doesn't give up on Israel. Make sense? Yes, sir. 
Yes. Yeah. Is there any other conclusion you can come to after reading that? No. And after comparing it to just the basics of what the gospel says, Jesus said, all that shepherding and sheep language and lost sheep of the house of Israel language, how can you come to any other conclusion than God is saying, I'm in charge, I'm God, I'm faithful, Israel belongs to me. And if you say anything else, you're wrong. <laughs> Questions? He's gracious to rebellious sinners. Isn't he just? Even Micah. I mean, I'm just going to keep picking on Micah for no reason at all. <laughs> anything else? All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.